a civilization is defined by what's going on in people's minds. You might think it's defined by the capital infrastructure or by the technology or by the weapons or, or these superficial things, but it's really defined by what's going on in people's mind. And so if you can actually improve what the mental state, the knowledge that folks have, that's what's going to accelerate civilization. Welcome to the season six of Outliers. I'm your host, Pankaj Mishra, and I'm really thrilled to be bringing this edition of Outliers in collaboration with the Times of India. Outliers is a series of freewheeling conversations with the ones who chose to take the road not taken often. It's about the crazy and the curious, those who dare to stand out and stand alone. Keep listening. to be with an outlier who in many ways actually defines uh, this whole idea of being an outlier, uh, at least the way I, I, I look at it and I have been looking at it. Uh, I'm really thrilled to have Sal Khan, the founder of Khan Academy with me today. Uh, Sal, welcome to this conversation. Great to be here, Pankaj. You know, first things first, Sal. I know you've told this story so many times, but I would love to hear from you. You know, I'm a little greedy here. Uh, can you talk a little bit about growing up and how some of the things uh, early on helped you become who you you know, became or, or who you are today? Can you give us where you come from a little? Sure. And, and I'm happy to cover as much or as little as you like. But, you know, I guess my, my narrative starts, I was born in uh, 1976 in uh, Metairie, Louisiana, which is right outside of New Orleans. It's actually between the airport and, and the downtown area. And my story, I think, starts off like a fairly stereotypical South Asian journey in the United States in that time period. Uh, many folks know that in 1965, uh, the U.S. passed an Immigration Act, which was the first time that they really allowed significant immigration from non-European countries, especially uh, South Asia. And there was also a shortage of healthcare workers. And so you had an influx of young Indian doctors coming to do their residency. My father was one of them coming from Bangladesh. Uh, he came in 1968, 1971, went back, uh, got an arranged marriage to my mother, who, who was born in, in uh, uh, near Calcutta. Mm -hmm. And the um, and, and then the, the story diverged a little bit. They had my sister in 73, 76. And then shortly after I was born, I actually don't know all of the details, but my, my parents separated and then divorced. So I never really got to know my, I actually really never met my father. And, um, and even though if you saw the, if you saw the, the headlines in say 1976, you'd say, okay, this is a doctor's family. They're going to do, they're going to be quite well off. But my mother essentially had to raise us as a, as a single mother. And she was working cashier type jobs, working at minimum wage. So we grew up pretty poor. Uh, but, you know, we, we never felt poor. I, I, would, I would say my mother always pointed out we ate well and we did eat. well. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, I think I benefited a ton uh, from having an older sister who was very academically precocious. It was it was great. Every time I entered a grade or a class, the teachers remembered my sister Farah from three years prior. And even though I probably didn't show a lot of promise early on, they always assumed that there was something there. Um <laughs> And, 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 and that, that makes a huge difference that people perceive you to, to be able to do something. Uh, by third, fourth, fifth grade, I had started to hit my stride, so to speak. I definitely had many formative moments with some amazing teachers, Miss Krause, Miss Roussel, uh, Miss Ellis are the ones that really uh, stick out, although there were many others in elementary school, then, you know, Miss North, uh, others in, in middle school. 
Mr. Hernandez, Miss Kennedy in high school. And it was really around, I would say, mid high school that I, I started to realize that if I really wanted to break out of some of the the constraints that my mother was facing financially, uh, I had friends whose families were doctors and lawyers and engineers, and I saw how life could be. So I was pretty determined at that point in mid high school to, to kind of, frankly, if I'm, if I'm honest, I was very determined to, to have financial security. Uh, and then at the same time, I got really enamored with with math and science. Earlier in my life, I thought I was going to be some type of an artist, a cartoonist or something. I always enjoyed that. Uh, and by end of high school, I was fascinated by physics. So I applied to MIT, which my high school was not a, a high school that was particularly noteworthy. I think I was the first person ever uh, to get in. Uh, but then, you know, I, I consider that a pretty major moment in my life, being able to go to Boston and then being surrounded by kids from all over the world that, you know, kind of pushed me to to, to think a little bit bigger uh, and pushed me academically as well. And, uh, you know, e even though I, I initially thought I was going to go into physics and then math and then computer science and my first job was in tech, I was always fascinated by education. Clearly, my journey was clearly impacted by education. I wouldn't have gotten to where I got without education. And I was also an observer of what was going on with everyone else. Mm -hmm. I would have friends who could beat me at chess, who, who could learn a video game far faster than me but they were flunking an algebra class or a calculus class. And I was always wondering why that had, whether that had to be the case. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I, I could keep going into my professional journey, but after that, I worked in tech for a little bit in the late nineties when the dot-com bubble burst, I said, let me take some shelter in business school. I went mm -hmm. to Harvard business school for a couple of years. I started realizing I, I found finance really interesting. I, I ended up working for a small hedge fund right after that. And as well, actually a year out of business school, I had just gotten married in 2004 my family was visiting me in Boston and it came out of conversation that my cousin Nadia was having trouble in math and I offered to tutor her. And that was the beginning of my journey into Khan Academy. That's the moment. I mean, I mean, that's one story, you know, it's a legend that the cousin and, and how it happened. Sal, what I want to kind of get under the hood is we talk about accidental innovations a lot and we have seen that in history uh, people talk about this serendipity. And even in this case, I mean, the, the stories I have, I have listened to, uh, you know, how it happened, how it shaped, it's, it's very similar. I mean, you also describe it as a kind of accidental in, in that sense. Uh, Sal, can you talk about what it takes an idea to journey from being just a serendipity to becoming what it is? I mean, can we spend a little time on the building blocks? Sure. And, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about the serendipity and I'm I'm definitely, I guess you could say, guilty of a lot, oftentimes with the way I tell the story of Khan Academy is a serendipitous one. And it has been. There's a lot of things that have seemed to just fall into place and work out. I've often joked with people at Khan Academy or friends and family that it feels like there's so many serendipitous things that benevolent aliens are using Khan Academy as a vector to prepare humanity for first contact uh, because <laughs> so so many things seem to fall so fall into place. But in, in, I also think that there's, you know, what we can call serendipity is really some type of a subconscious intent that's constantly looking for some expression. Mm -hmm. And so in high school, even though I told myself that, hey, I'm going to be an engineer or I'm going to find some financially solid job, whenever there was an opportunity to tutor or work on education, I did that. I was tutoring peers in high school, in college, whenever I was looking for an internship, even a software internship, I gravitated to ones that focused on learning. I had one internship, my first, one of my first, actually my first job in college was uh, reading, was reading books on tape to students that had 
uh, dis- had kind of reading disabilities. Wow. Uh, so even that was kind of an education. And I like that job because I got to read textbooks and get paid for it. <laughs> I read it out loud and with all these cassette tapes and then deliver it at, at students' dorm rooms. Uh, I, then I remember my next job I had was writing software for the foreign language department at MIT to help people learn German. Uh, then I got a job, uh, actually a fellowship to work on adaptive software for mathematics. So I kept getting gravitating towards this. I ended up teaching MCAT up between my junior and senior years in, in, in college. So it was always there. And then even when I was working at the hedge fund, I would always tell my friends, I don't know if they believe me. I said, well, I'm going to do this long enough to be financially independent. And then I want to start a school on my own terms. I always imagined that being a Dumbledore type figure would be just a, a cool way to live one's life. So it was always in the back of my mind. So when my cousins needed help, I viewed that, one, I wanted to help them, and I viewed that as an opportunity to connect with my family that was 1,500 miles away, but I also viewed that as an opportunity to dig a little bit deeper into this this domain that I kept gravitating towards. Wow. I mean, I'm so grateful, Sal, that you explained it this way, because a lot of time, you know, personally, I feel that we kind of trivialize the efforts that go uh, behind making, uh, you know, of a moment like this when something sparks, and, and it is not that serendipitous after all. I mean, from what I'm hearing from you, uh, a lot of it was being shaped over the years leading to that moment, right? Yeah, I definitely had a a belief, a confidence that there was a better way of doing it. I think for anyone who has been successful academically, you, you can either tell yourself one of two stories. You can either tell yourself, oh, I'm just gifted. My brain is better at this stuff than other people. Or you could say, well, I'm just thinking about it in the right way. And if other people just thought about it or had exposure in the same way that I'm thinking about it, anyone can learn anything. And between tutoring and helping friends in the dorm room and then tutoring my own cousins, I became, I always had a bias towards that latter belief that anyone could really learn anything if they just viewed it the right way. And then the more that I saw success with my cousins and then people who weren't my cousins and started writing, making tools for them, it only built my confidence. And I, and I kept wanting to work more and more and more on it. So it was a combination of that. Very, you know, I, I had a point of view. I thought there was a way to do it. I just thought it was a matter of when, not if. And then on top of that, I would say that there has been a fair, a fair amount of serendipity. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's well said. Uh, so, Sam, now let us look at different building blocks. We know video was there. There was YouTube. We we now, of course, know uh, your background and how you were ready and prepared to seize that moment in many ways. There was an opportunity. Can you talk about different building blocks and their origin stories and how they evolved? I mean, what were some of the things uh, you learned or you failed at when you were putting this together, uh, different blocks? And what were they? Yeah, I mean, if we talk about failures, we, we could go even all the way back to when I was in college and I made a, I had a fellowship and I made this piece of software called Math Planet, which in a lot of ways has a lot of the same DNA of, of modern Khan Academy, where students can get exercises and practice and feedback immediate and things like that. And it was actually a pretty cool piece of software for 1997, but then I created it and no one used it. <laughs> And, and, you know, I think people early on in their software careers and, you know, after college, I worked in tech and that was in the late nineties. I lived out here in Silicon Valley and everyone was a new startup every, every few weeks. And I, I had dabbled in it and I, and I realized repeatedly, you can make really cool things, but if you didn't really resonate with people or find a an impact with people, it didn't matter how cool it was. So that I would say was a bit of a building block when my cousins needed help. 
I guess we could call that a building block. Uh, Although I I think what made it a building block is that I constantly said, okay, it worked with one cousin. Now let me work with Nadia's younger brothers. Now let me work with more word spread in my family. Free tutoring is going on. So I was looking at a way of how do I make this more efficient? How do I make the skill? This was all while I had a day job at the hedge fund. fund. So it, it was, it was, it was a hobby. I started making software. And to your point, the first building block of the software actually had nothing to do with videos. It was actually almost version two of, of Math Planet that I had made in 1997, uh, which was exercises for my cousins. I saw a common pattern. The reason why they ha- were having difficulty is a lot of times they had Swiss cheese gaps in their foundations in mathematics, or they were just viewing mathematics as these disparate formulas to memorize as opposed to just a way of thinking. And if you had the right way of thinking, the formulas just fall out of it. And so I was giving them exercises to supplement our our on-the-phone session, so to speak. And that's what I called Khan Academy. And it was a friend that I suggested that I make YouTube videos to complement the the software. And I initially said, that's a horrible idea. YouTube's for dogs on skateboards, cats playing piano, whatever. Uh, but And I also, I, I think there's a, a pitfall that we often get into where we, when someone gives you an idea, you look and say, oh, well, other people have done that. Why should I do that? But then I kind of got over the idea that it wasn't my idea. And I said, you know, I saw it was on YouTube, but I felt like I could have my own take on it. And so I started making videos to complement the software. And these video lessons, which YouTube forced me to make under 10 minutes, these were things that I saw that my cousins were having a lot of difficulty in. These were also videos that I felt that my spin on it is different than how it often is in the textbook that made math very disjoint. Mm -hmm. And my cousins famously told me they like me better on YouTube than in person. Uh, And uh, people who weren't my cousins started started using the, the content. So that became a building block. And that was an important one because that was a, YouTube was a very powerful discovery mechanism. If I just wrote the software, who knows if anyone would have, you know, some people were discovering it on their own, but it would have taken a long time. YouTube made it, people were using search. They were finding my videos amongst many others. But then it was, it, it, oftentimes people say it went viral, but it went viral slowly, which really just means word of mouth. Friends told friends, hey, it really helped me. There's this guy on YouTube uh, who explained factoring a polynomial, who explained Newton's laws. You should check him out. Teachers started referring it. And even though I wasn't by any stretch the first person to make videos on YouTube, I think the comprehensiveness of it, I think the tone of it, uh, being very intuition focused, being very casual, I am a little bit eccentric at times. I think the... Um, the the connections that I was trying to make between concepts really started to resonate with people. And by 2009, there was about 50 or 100,000 folks using these resources. I still had my day job, but I had trouble focusing on my day job. I was getting letters from people all over the world saying how it was helping them pass their class or how it was letting their children keep up with school or even people who were deployed in the military saying how they were able to use these resources so that when they went back uh, to, to their country, they could they could engage in college. And so I sat down with my wife. We had some savings to essentially get a down payment on a house, but it felt like there was a real thing here. So I set it up as a not-for-profit Khan Academy mission, free world-class education for anyone, anywhere. And I took the plunge. I said, let's, let's give ourselves a year kind of thinking that surely the universe will recognize the brilliance of this idea and any entrepreneurial effort, whether it's for-profit or non-profit, you you quickly realize that the universe is is slow to recognize the brilliance of, of your idea. Yeah, and then what a journey it's been. Now, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, uh, Sal, is why nonprofit? And I'll also give you a little background, right? I mean, I have I have now watched not just in India but even elsewhere in the world 
a generation of so-called edtech companies that have come and some of them are like 20 30 40 billion dollar valuations and so on but why are you non-profit and, and can you talk about that a little i mean wh- why does it matter to you and and how does it help or it doesn't yeah it's it's, it's a fascinating question and there's a few harvard business school case studies on on Khan academy and this is often one of the central questions I'll tell you the thought process when I made it a not-for-profit, and also I'll tell you my reflections on on some of what you just mentioned. So when this was starting, I live in the middle of Silicon Valley. I had never worked for a nonprofit. I actually wasn't really familiar with what even a nonprofit was all about. But as a hedge fund analyst, I I did nothing but talk to publicly traded companies and their leaderships. And I saw a pattern of how much ownership and capital structure drove the motivations. And I think there's many very good, very innovative motivations in the for-profit sector and sometimes not so good. Uh, But I also saw that even if you had a really strong founder who was very mission-driven, over time, as the ownerships changed, the the, the organization's missions would would change or the missions just became the bottom line, which often might be different than what what the founder uh, wanted. Uh, I, I also thought about, well, let me imagine a home run in the for-profit uh, realm, mm-hmm. uh, fully recognizing that education was a bit of a weird space where the markets don't work well. But even if they did, okay, it could be it could be the next Google or the next Facebook. That by itself, that would be huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I thought, well, we know education and probably healthcare are the two sectors where markets don't function well. The decision maker is different than the uh, buyer who's different than the beneficiary. We also know that both education and healthcare are markets where we have some societal values that might not be what the the market outcomes lead to. If someone wants to learn, they should learn regardless of how much money they they or their family makes. Likewise, if someone's bleeding, they should be treated regardless of how much they or their family makes. Uh, and and so I said, well, there's got to be something that's focused on the mission. There's got to no matter what, there's got to be something that regardless of who quote owns it that the mission is number 1, that it can be multi-generational. And it really is a not-for-profit structure. If you look at any institution that has lasted over multiple generations and has stayed true to their original vision or mission, it is a not-for-profit. If you're thinking about the great universities, the great museums, the library systems of of the world. And so it was delusional thinking at the time. I was one guy in a walk-in closet. I said, a home run on one side is Google. That's cool. That could have a lot of impact. I I could personally do quite well. Uh, but a home run on the not-for-profit side felt even more inspirational. What if this could be the next Oxford, the next Smithsonian, uh, the next great great institution that in theory could operate on a completely different scale? Even when I was thinking about this, Khan Academy had reached more students than Harvard had in its history. And this is this is in the early days. And we've obviously grown by a factor of a thousand uh, since 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 those early days. And so I I, I that was one motivation. Uh, and you know, there, there was questions. Will we be able to attract capital? Would we be able to attract talent? Would we stay as nimble? Because those are some of the negative stereotypes of, of not-for-profits. But for me, the, the answer has been definitively yes. Uh, we have for sure been able to attract some of the best talent. A lot of philanthropists recognize where the social ROI is here. We are also generating revenue streams on, on top of that. In terms of the reflection, you're right. A lot of the, the ed tech for profits that came out of the same, the same vintage as Khan Academy now are getting these incredible, incredible valuations. Coursera, eight billion dollars. Baidu's is you know tens of billions of dollars, and I hope all of all of those folks uh, think about donating to Khan Academy. <laughs> but you know, the, 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 the way I think about it is, my goal is not to 
get a big valuation fast. My goal is, which can have a lot of positive impact in the world. I don't want to be, I don't want to under, I don't want to understate what that can do. I hope all of those have huge impact, but I think there's also something powerful about growing fast slowly uh, where you can build it. So it's, it's essentially built to last. It can focus on that mission. That mission is going to be a very, very long-term mission. We want to make a dent next year. We want to make a dent over the next decade, but I also want Khan Academy to be around in 50 years, hundred years, uh, continuing to push on this mission and on this vision. And if we were for profit, it could have been acquired even, even in a world where it was IPO'd and I was still the CEO, there would be a huge pressure to make quarterly earnings, to have growth for growth's sake. Instead, I mean, I, this is the world I used to be in. I know how the motivations work. And, and I realized that, yes, that money is very, very tempting. And obviously we could use more resources, but it is nice to have that, that laser focus on the mission. That's so well said, Sal. I mean, even as a non-profit myself uh, with Factor Daily, you know, I, I, I very much associate with this. And, and I think it makes so much of sense. Now, the, the other thing I, I noticed, and, you know, I have a 10-year-old and, and she's a big fan of Khan Academy, is that the, the kind of habit formation uh, that happens with kids. And I wonder how is that achievable across languages, across different learning levels? I mean, simple things like the voice, the, the so-called blackboard, can you talk a little bit about those nuances? I mean, th- those little things, tiny things that go on inside. Yeah, well, first of all, if your daughter is forming a habit, I think she's primed to be very, very, very <laughs> successful because that habit that she is forming, and, and that's really the intent of Khan Academy is so that we can have this personalized learning, this mastery learning, giving students agency, learning how to learn. Not only will she learn her math and her science and other subjects, but that learning how to learn, she'll be unstoppable later in her life because she has a question, she wants to change careers, she wants to upskill. Hopefully Khan Academy is still around, the MOOCs are still around, there's going to be other resources. She's going to know how to pull those resources, self-actualize, and then display it to others so that she can, she can or, or solve whatever problem uh, that she's trying to do. You know, what we try to do is on the video side, just make it make it as human as possible, give as much intuition as possible, focus on really being transparent with thought processes. I I can't tell you how much most education materials is made by a committee. They'll write a script, they'll hire an actor to make it. (laughs) Even now when when we have other people create videos on Khan Academy, I always tell them, don't write a script, think out loud. The listener or the viewer knows whether you are thinking alongside them. Don't be afraid to show your humanity. And your humanity could be making a small error, but then, of course, fixing it. it your humanity is letting your personality come out. Your humanity is, if you, you need to be excited about what you're, what you're teaching, what you're explaining. If you're not excited about it, there's no way that the, the person listening is going to be excited about it. You need to be in a calm, happy, de-stressed place when you're doing it. If you're not in a calm, happy, de-stressed place, there's no way that the kid who's slightly stressed about their math or their science is going to be in that calm, happy a de-stressed place. You need to connect. If you don't understand fundamentally how things are connected, don't make the video. Don't don't write the software. Don't don't just. You know, a lot of times where teachers or books skip steps, it's because they don't know the why. And I say just be transparent about it. If you don't know the why, say, hey, I'm not sure why A leads to B. I did some research. I think actually even the scientific community does not know why A leads to B. But this is what we observe in the universe. That by itself is inspiring, far more inspiring than say, of course, A leads to B. That leaves quick kids with a question mark and makes them feel like they're not smart for, for wondering why, why A leads to B. But if, if there is an intuition, give the intuition. We also on the software side try to 
leverage as much as we can from video games and game mechanics. We have, I have a list of a hundred things. The team has a list of a hundred things we want to do to improve on it. Uh, but I'm happy to hear that your, your daughter is already, um, <laughs> is already uh, uh, benefiting from some of this. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I think these little things uh, go a long way and, and, uh, you know, it kind of also helps us understand what it takes to kind of stay differentiated without trying to, because the point you make about putting the humane side at the center of all of this uh, is, is this something, which, because a lot of time people throw money at getting that perfect playbook, you know, uh, make no mistake, script it, uh, you know, perfectly and things like that. But you're so, so right. The, the other thing I wanted to understand from you, Sal, is I, I think I was reading... Uh, one of the articles, and you were quoted as saying, we identify gaps in children, but then we ignore them. I wanted some of your thoughts on the so-called conventional uh, system of education. And, and can you articulate it better for us? Yeah, you know, education is one of these things that it's so, it's essentially been the same for roughly 200 years. We've all grown up in it, that it's hard to imagine that there's another way of doing things. But I remind folks, if we were to go back 500 years, very few people got an education. But those few who did, let's say you were a prince and you were getting an education, you would have an army of tutors. And those tutors, if you didn't learn to read a certain type of writing, they would keep working with you until you've mastered it. If your military strategy was weak, they'd keep working until you mastered it. If your history was weak, they'd keep working with you until you've mastered it because you're going to be king one day. The king can't be 80% good at military strategy. Then about 200-ish years ago, about 250-ish years ago, you had this very utopian idea that essentially everyone should get an education for free, this idea of free mass public education. And it was it was it had a massively positive effect on society and it's no coincidence that the first countries or the first nations that did this prussia which has evolved into mostly modern day germany the uk japan the united states that those were also the first countries to industrialize those were also the first countries to have a broad based middle class those were also the uh, countries that for uh, much of their history have have been able to have a a kind of a vibrant um civic discourse, although obviously in Japan and Germany, there's, there's been some aberrations there, uh, but they, they have had a broad-based middle class and, and, and they've industrialized. But to do this free mass public education, they had to make some compromises. Instead of personalizing the education to the needs of the student, which the prince used to get 500 years ago, they said, all right, let's leverage tools we know from the Industrial Revolution. Let's batch kids together by age. Let's apply some process to them. We'll deliver our lessons, 180 lessons on 180 school days. We'll measure how they're doing. We'll grade them. And then we'll sort them. So you get a 80% on a test. Well, too bad. We have to, the, the line keeps moving. We're now going to move to the next station, which is probably going to move, which is probably going to build on that gap. And it was kind of okay during the Industrial Revolution because around middle school or high school, they would look at the, quote, product or the students that for the most part got or mastered a, a lot of what they were given. All right, these are the kids that are destined to be the doctors, the lawyers, the engineers, the professors. There were kids that got yeah, a little bit here, there, but they had real gaps. Okay, they would be the mid-level managers. And then there were the kids that just weren't getting it. Their gaps were debilitating uh, and they're going to be the, the labor, the labor force of the Industrial Revolution. 
Now we know society has an imperative that that's not okay. AI and robotics are going to collapse those bottom two layers. We need everyone to be able to participate in the knowledge economy. And we also know that that's not going to be possible if when a student gets a 80% in, let's say, exponents in sixth grade, that we just say, all right, that's a C, let's move on to the next concept, which is negative exponents or logarithms, somehow expecting them to learn the more advanced thing, even though they didn't master the more basic one. But if I gave, if we were talking 50 years ago, you're like, so what's the solution? We can't afford to have a tutor for every student. But now we do have the tools. In fact, this is what Khan Academy is built to do, where Mm -hmm. we can have every student practicing and learning at their own time and pace, getting feedback, while teachers, while parents are able to get real-time information on where that student is. And if a student hasn't mastered something, they can keep working on it. If they're stuck, the teacher can do a more focused intervention. You can even pair students together so that they can help each other. And so in theory, now one teacher in a classroom of 30 can get closer to that ideal of true differentiation, truly meeting every student where they are. And so that's everything that we're focused on. And it's, it's, it's obviously become an even more important issue with the pandemic and all of the learning loss around that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm so uh, glad that you bring pandemic here because, I mean, one of the things we are looking at is uh, the impact of pandemic. I mean, of course, Amazon is selling a lot more uh, than everybody's talking about this digital transformation. But can you talk a little bit about what this pandemic has, has meant for, for you at Khan Academy? And, and what are the things that kind of are, are myths and, and the things that have actually happened? Well, the the headline is February of 2020. I remember getting a letter from a teacher in South Korea saying that he was using Khan Academy to keep his kids learning during their nationwide school closures. And that blew my mind that a whole nation, a whole country would shut down its schools physically because of COVID-19. And then we know, obviously, it was, I think, two weeks later that California started shutting down its schools. And shortly after, much of the country or much of the world had shut down schools physically And it was one of those moments where you look left and you look right. And I told our team, I think this is us. Uh, And we saw it that that first week, our our traffic essentially tripled. We normally see about 30 million learning minutes on a school day. That became 80, 85, 90 million learning minutes. We tried to do what we could to help parents and teachers understand how pandemic schooling could work. Khan Academy could be a big part of it, especially for math and science. But there were other resources that we wanted to say, hey, this, maybe use this tool for reading, use these YouTube videos for uh, activity, to learn yoga, whatever, for meditation, things that could be good for kids. Uh, and we just tried to keep up with that. We've accelerated a whole bunch of content, the things that would help people get ready for their grade levels. We're accelerating a whole bunch of science content. So our science is as comprehensive as our math content. And, uh, you, you know, well, the main headline is there's been more focus on digital divide than any than ever before. It's mm-hmm. been a clear negative during the pandemic. So many kids did not have sufficient Internet access or device access. But the silver lining is there's more energy than ever globally to close the digital divide. And obviously for Khan Academy to do its work, to have its impact, that digital divide has to be that people need people need devices. There's more conversation than ever around learning, not being bound by time or space. That's mm-hmm. obviously something that we've always believed. So that I think in the long run is going to be a positive thing. And there's more conversation than ever or more, more of a recognition than ever that kids have real gaps and you can't just pretend like they don't exist and keep moving forward. We know where that gets you. Even before the pandemic, 70%, 70% of American high school graduates who go to community college and the numbers are not a lot better for four-year colleges, they have to take remedial math. They don't even place into college algebra. And college algebra is really 10th grade math. And so the remedial math that they're taking 
is really at the middle school level. So even though these kids take eighth grade math, algebra one, geometry, algebra two, sometimes they take pre-calculus and calculus, they go to college and they said, you're not even ready to learn algebra yet because you have so many gaps. Oh. That was happening pre-pandemic. The pandemic is, is making the, ba- the gaps even larger. It's not okay to just keep going with the status quo. Yes, so true. And I, I think, yeah, I'm watching it firsthand. The, sadly, and, you know, final two, three questions, we will wrap up. Uh, the other thing we associate with Khan Academy mostly is that, you know, it, it's for kids. Uh, you know, any insight you have picked over the years or, or recently in terms of age groups? I mean, uh, what, what kind of profiles? I mean, anything that jumps at you, uh, you know, to kind of uh, myth busting as such. Yeah, our age demographics are broader than I think many people might suspect. If you look just at the content, we have Khan Academy Kids, which is an app. Everything I'm talking about is free, philanthropically supported. I encourage folks to check it out. It's for ages three to seven. It's math, reading, writing, social, emotional learning. It literally covers all of the standards that can be covered uh, from the pre-K standards and all the way through the common core first and second grade, kindergarten first and second grade standards in all of these subjects. There's hundreds of books in it. I think when people download it, they will be surprised by how much content and interactivity there is in that one app. Uh, But then we have math that goes into elementary, middle, high school, early college. Our sciences are quite comprehensive or and getting more comprehensive in middle school, high school, early college. We've started to dabble in the humanities, history, civics, a little bit in English language arts. So our age group, in theory, could be anywhere in terms of the subject matters, what you traditionally learn between, say, ages three and 21, which is already a pretty large swath. Yeah. What we see, though, is that many people older than 21 are using Khan Academy. In some cases, it could be graduate students. A lot of graduate students swear by or business school students looking at Khan Academy to refresh their algebra, refresh their statistics, or frankly, refresh whatever domain they're getting into, refresh their biology, refresh their chemistry. Uh, There's a lot we have a financial literacy partnership with Bank of America. A lot of folks come just to frankly understand what a 401k is, understand what a, I remember during the financial crisis, I explained what was going on, how the economy works, how the Federal Reserve works. We have a lot of older students uh, using that. We have a lot of teachers, a lot of parents using Khan Academy to brush up themselves so that they can think about how they can explain it to their to their children or to their to their students. I even had a few professors, a Nobel Prize winner in economics uh, told us that he was using Khan Academy's econ course to brush up before he had to, he hadn't taught the course in a while (laughs) and and, and essentially to go back. I've gotten letters and this is both, this is amazing in a good way and also very sad. I remember this was early days. This was before I quit my job. Uh, uh, A woman had emailed me telling me that she'd been diagnosed with terminal cancer. She had three months left to live. And it was her life dream to learn calculus. And she was going to spend the next three months of her life, I think she was in her 70s, learning calculus on Khan Academy. So some people are doing it purely out of out of interest or, or kind of a life goal. Wow, this, this is so humbling to listen. Uh, Sal, you know, we've talked about a lot of things that have worked uh, in, in your journey so far. What are your biggest failures? What are the things that haven't worked out for you and or even Khan Academy for that matter? Oh, so many. Uh, you know, the one that I'm I'm always struggling with, and it's a constant. Once you think think you figured it out, then you get to a new level of struggle. Is as a, as an organization grows, and, and this goes back to I'm actually happy we're growing fast slowly. You know, <laughs> we've grown from one person to two hundred people in the last ten years. Some of our peer organizations have grown from a small number of people to a few thousand people. 
Mm-hmm. And when you look at it from the outside, you say, oh, wow, 2,000 people, so much better than 200 or 20,000 people, so much better than 2,000. But what you learn as you grow and scale an organization is it is so hard to make sure that you have alignment, that the culture is right, uh, that that everyone is pointed in the right direction, that you have really good, solid processes, but you also are willing to to pivot every now and then, that uh, you you have a lot of successes, but you're not afraid to take risks. A lot of times when you get more successful, you're, you're afraid of losing what you have versus trying to, to do new things. And so that's been a constant up and down. You know, when you go from one person to six people, you need to manage that. And there's been so many ups and downs on, on that front, ways that I realized that I wasn't managing optimally. Then you think you figure that out. You go to 20 people, those problems uh, come back. How do I align? How do I make sure we get the best out of, out of these 20 folks? Uh, so I think that's one. I think we've definitely, in hindsight, I wish we could go in a straight strategic or tactical direction to where I now want to go. But mm-hmm. we had to throw a lot of stuff against the wall and see if it stuck. And some of it did, some of it didn't. Uh, and it's been hard to to figure out what is the vector, what is the maximum gradient towards this ideal of free world-class education for anyone anywhere. Because I can see the top of the mountain, I can visualize that, but there's a lot of fog in between. Uh, so you're naturally going to sometimes go a little bit and you realize, oh, there's a dead end. Let's back up a little bit and move forward in another direction. Great. So I, I, I know you are, I mean, teacher of the world in, in many ways in that sense, right? But how do you learn, Sal? I mean, what is your source of learning? There's different types of learning, but the way I like to learn academic material is read a lot as much as I can from very disparate sources. Uh, I, you know, I think if there's one, one thing that I realized that I had that allowed me to thrive growing up is I can read academic text very, very quickly. Um, I, I, I remember even in college, I, I didn't, we couldn't, I couldn't really afford some of the textbooks. So I used to tell my friend, can you just give it to me the hour before the test? And I would kind of just, you know, I can read, I can read, I don't read actual like novels particularly fast, but I can read academic text, especially math text quite, quite quickly. So I, I can take those and, and process that process those. And then I'll, I'll kind of dabble a little bit on a piece of paper, make sure that I can draw the connections to, for myself, that they come naturally, almost from a point of, of deduction. And then once I feel like, oh, this is natural for me, this is common sense, then I, 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 I you know, that's what I actually try to explain it to others. There's other types of learning. I am someone that has learned that I really enjoy asking people questions. I don't like cocktail parties where everyone's at a superficial level. So what do you do? Where do you live? You know, all that kind of stuff. But I really enjoy a good dinner party where you're able to dig a little bit deeper. So why did you do that? What's your concept of God? If any, you know, just, just really, you know, do you, what's your purpose in life? Have you found the things that you wanted and were the things that you really wanted? And when you do that, I find that that's actually a very powerful source of, of life wisdom or experience uh, that, that I, I enjoy a lot. Yeah, this is so candid. And final two questions, uh, Sal, I'm sorry I'm being a little greedy here. <laughs> can you talk a little bit about the future of learning or education itself? I mean, can you give me a science fiction view of things as you see it today? Yeah, and I'll, I, I'll start with a little bit of the inspiration. It goes back to your early question of, of why even a not-for-profit or why Khan Academy. And I've often told folks that back in seventh grade, I first read Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, and it's a science fiction. Anyone who hasn't read it needs to read it. Super interesting. If you're at least, it's about a middle school reading level. 
uh, it's just a great story in and of itself. But the the general gist, and I'm not giving away anything, is it's 30,000 years in the future. Humanity has colonized the galaxy. There's one galactic empire. And one of the citizens of it, Harry Seldon, he's an academic. He has a new field called psychohistory, which is a combination of math and economics and statistics and history and psychology. And he's able to statistically produce or, or predict large-scale historical movement. And his science shows that the Galactic Empire is about to enter into a 10,000-year dark ages. And he decides to do something about it. His math, his science also says that if he's able to collect the empire's knowledge, its technology, its know-how, its culture, and put it in, in one foundation at the periphery of the galaxy, that that foundation actually can shorten that dark ages from 10,000 years to 1,000 years. So 9,000 fewer years of famine, of war, of ignorance, uh, and of intolerance. And I remember when I read that, I was like, that's, that's fascinating. On one level, who thinks on that timescale? And when I grew up and started working, I said, wow, no one thinks on that timescale. To think much less beyond your own life, but to think on the scale of hundreds or, or thousands of years. And it was also an aha for me in middle school to say, Harry Seldon's right. At the end of the day, a civilization is defined by what's going on in people's minds. You might think it's defined by the capital infrastructure or mm -hmm. by the technology or by the weapons or, or these superficial things, but it's really defined by what's going on in people's mind. And so if you can actually improve what the mental state, the knowledge that folks have, that's what's going to accelerate civilization. And so my somewhat delusional <laughs> dream for Khan Academy is maybe Khan Academy can be Harry Seldon's foundation. Hopefully we're not about to enter into a dark ages, but hopefully if we actually can create a world where everyone has a free world-class education, that the world of the future is going to make today look like a dark ages where today, not everyone can participate in the knowledge economy. So many people are marginalized, maybe in 30 years, 50 years, a hundred years, everyone uh, could be making podcasts, starting nonprofits, being an art artist. We're in a Star Trek reality. A lot of people don't look at Star Trek from an economic point of view, but if you look at it, there's no scarcity anymore. If you want a milkshake, your replicator can make you a milkshake, and it's not clear that you have to pay for it. Everyone is an artist, an engineer, an explorer, a, a scientist of some kind. And if you think about it, that, that actually should be the natural place uh, that we are going as a society because we're going to have so much productivity from artificial intelligence, from robotics, from computing, from, from other things, from space exploration. Resources might not be as scarce in the future uh, that, that we need to think about how to up-level everyone's minds. Wow, Sal, <laughs> this, is, this is such an such a amazing way to articulate it all. And you also answered my final question already, <laughs> so, which, is, uh, which was about... How do you see Khan Academy itself 100 years from now? And, and so well articulated. This is clearly a life-changing conversation. Um, oh, well, I, you know, I'll just say one, you know, Khan Academy in 100 years, I have no idea what form it might take. It might be a neural plug right into your brain. <laughs> it might be a pill. It might involve CRISPR in some way. But I hope the outcome of Khan Academy in 50 years, 100 years, is that uh, society will wonder wow, there was a time where not everyone understood quantum physics. There was a time where not everyone was writing novels for fun. There was a time where not everyone couldn't communicate with everyone else. There was a time that, you know, there's these wars and misogyny and racism, uh, just from this ignorance, it would be like us looking at cavemen. 
uh, I hope that you know Khan Academy can play a role in, in in helping us get to that next level, so that we're ready to meet these benevolent aliens. Absolutely, and inshallah, we all get there, Sal. Uh, thank you so much for having this conversation. This this is I, I truly believe this is kind of a deep insight and and life changing conversation. Uh, Godspeed, stay well, and thanks again.